This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Dynobase and Datadog. On this episode, I chat with Tim Wagner about the past, present, and future of serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 52. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm chatting with Tim Wagner. Hey, Tim, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a lot of history. There's a lot of stuff that we're going to get into today, but but right now you are the uh, CEO and the co-founder of Vendia. So I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background, your history, uh, and then what Vendia is all about. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, uh, Last few jobs here, I mean, I started uh, uh, what eventually became AWS Lambda at uh, AWS, you know, joined there back in 2012. We, we launched that in 2014. Um, and, you know, that, that taught me a ton, uh, not just about how to run a business in the cloud, uh, but also about how you build these massive, horizontally scalable cloud services. Uh, then I spent some time down here in San Francisco at Coinbase, uh, a US-based uh, cryptocurrency uh, uh, exchange. and. I learned a lot about a different kind of scale, which is how you run these massively scaled ledgers that can uh, that can hold really important information. For example, like uh, like like some like somebody's uh, like somebody's bank account. Uh, and then Vendia is in some sense kind of the combination of these two things. You know, I took everything that I've learned over the last seven years, uh, and my co-founder Shruti Rao and I, you know, have brought that together to create a business to help uh, companies break down some of the data silo and information exchange problems that they've got today. So we're still in stealth mode for uh, for a few more weeks, you know. But I can tell you that um, uh, a couple of things about it. Um, you know, for one. You know, when I sold uh, AWS Lambda, customers were always excited about the product, but they also always had two concerns. You know, first, it was an inherently proprietary technology, you know, specific to AWS. Uh, and then secondly, while it was this awesome solution for compute, it didn't kind of come preset for uh, data solutions or, or a solution for state. And so with Vendia, we're trying to reimagine how companies can go serverless and then at the same time, solve some of the biggest, baddest challenges they've got around data silos and vendor lock-in at the same time. Um, by the way, speaking of serverless, Vendia is also proudly server and container free. Awesome. So uh, that's awesome, first of all, and I'm excited for Vendia. I really you know, am interested. Anything that you do uh, is just gold. So I think that uh, this is going to be pretty <laughs> exciting uh, and I, I can't wait for it to come out. But what I'd really like to do today, since I have you, I mean, for all intents and purposes, and I and I think you always know, say this lovingly, but you're really the father <laughs> of serverless, right? I mean, you, Lambda is what kicked off this whole thing. And I know that there were other companies that did sort of this, sort of like a fast type thing, and but not anywhere near to the scale that, that Lambda did. And I would love to hear that story. As a fan of serverless, as a fan of AWS Lambda, could we go back to the beginning and just maybe give me, you know, a little some insights into to how this all started? So the a uh, little bit of the Lambda origin story, huh? <laughs> yes, please. So, uh, yeah, so we so we roll back the clock. You know, it's it's 2012. Um, I get hired into into AWS, and it's my first day there. And my uh, my boss, uh, Alyssa Henry, who at that time is running all of storage, so S3, EBS, like the whole the whole storage uh, division for AWS, sits me down at lunch and says. 
Okay, Tim, so here's the deal. We heard from customers that they love S3. It's simple, it's easy to use, it's a different kind of way of thinking about the cloud. They love all of that, but it's just a storage solution, right? There's no way to, let's say you store an image, there's no way to make a, a thumbnail of it. You pull out a compressed file, there's no easy way to decompress it on the fly, plus the other million things developers might wanna do with the, with the stuff they're storing in here. Um, so they've told us this in, in customer advisory meetings and one-on-ones, uh, see if you can do something with that. Okay, I'm busy, gotta run, um, good luck. <laughs> So that, this is day one for me at AWS. This is literally my very first conversation coming out of, uh, you know, the sort of the onboarding and signing up all the paperwork. So I'm like, okay, uh, grow a business in the cloud, um, make it easy, and think about S3 as a kind of inspiration. And it's, it's funny because a lot of people think uh, that Lambda grew out of EC2, and it's obviously a, a natural uh, extension of thinking about compute in the cloud, but it really came uh, out of the S3 organization. And it was this, you know, this kind of kissing cousin to the idea of making storage super simple. You know, back then S3 basically did put, get, and list. That was it. And mm -hmm. so the idea is what is the, you know, this is sort of the remit that we had. What is put, get, and list for compute? What is that? Uh, what, what, what if you could just say run or what became invoke in the cloud and you could make a service like that? So we got started, you know, we did, uh, I think as, as Amazon is famous for doing, we worked back from customers. I did, you know, just dozens and dozens of calls with uh, some of the folks who were some of the biggest and frankly, some of the smallest AWS customers at the time. And, uh, you know, we asked them, you know, how would you like this to work? What would you want it to do? And we went through lots of, uh, you know, lots of, you know, as anything, finding product market fit, their false starts. Right. Uh, at one thought point, we thought maybe this is like a scripting service. It should be a scripting language. We could call it Amazon Super, you know, Amazon Simple Scripting Service. And then we realized the acronym maybe didn't work the best for that. <laughs> <laughs> so from from domain specific uh, imagery stuff to, uh, you know, to scripting to finally landing on. Uh, no, really, the challenge here is make compute simple. Now, we realized uh, we were onto something when we realized that the first million developers using AWS are not the way, they're not the next 10 million developers. And we had to make the cloud as easy for someone who does applications and business logic as it is for someone with a PhD in distributed systems. And that's when we realized like there was, there was some there there. Right. Uh, and so we got excited about that. We came up with this idea for event hookup and, uh, and we were kind of off to the races. Awesome. So I, I love that. And, and now, obviously, you, you mentioned product market fit. So there's no way you got this thing right on the first shot, right? You must have <laughs> had to go through a million different iterations. So what, like, what did you get? I mean, what did you get right, and what did you get wrong? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it is funny. Like you think, you know, where was the crystal ball clear, and where was it? Right. Uh, where, where was it? Maybe a little bit muddy here. Um, it, you know, I think one of the things we got we got right in an and and and. and you know, I say this without ego. I mean, this because this was this was a lot of us uh, working hard on this. Was uh, was the event piece of this? You know, we realized that there's a lot that you can do to make asynchronous event generation and handling you know, really easy. It's a super powerful paradigm. And if you look at the stuff in Lambda, that's probably been the most um, some of the first things that a company adopts. You know, around things like cron jobs and simple events coming out of S3, uh, and also sort of where. You know, Lambda's got a lot of its scale and initial success. A lot of it has been around those those asynchronous and event handling mechanisms, and uh, and obviously AWS has continued to double down on that uh, with services like Event Hub that make that uh, you know even easier even easier to do. Uh, so that I think then on the on the what did we get right? Easier way to compute events. Um, you know the 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 idea of making it multilingual, not tying it to uh, to a single language or necessarily yeah. a single paradigm. So making it as broad as possible. Um, 
things that we got wrong. Well, I I, I, I tell this story from you know uh, I've told this story before. Uh, I remember sitting in in uh, Andy Jassy's conference room, and for those of you who haven't ever worked at AWS, Andy's conference room is called the Chop. Uh, so <laughs> different conversation about why it's called the Chop, but it's called the Chop. And so when you talk about going to the Chop, it's uh, you know it's this big thing, right? You know Andy Jassy, all his directs are there. It's this high pressure environment. <laughs> And I remember sitting in the chop and uh, the guy who was running sales at the time asks me, so he's like, I got to sell this, this crap you're about to make here, dude. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> so I got to know what's it good for and what's it not good for. Tell me something a customer will never do with it. And I'm like, oh, Adam, no one's ever going to use this for video transcoding. Like that kind of dense compute, you know, we'll, we'll mm -hmm. never get that. We'll never have that with, with Lambda. So, of course, you know, a cloud guru, you know, has, has been up on stage at the serverless yeah. conference talking about how fantastic Lambda is for doing video <laughs> transcoding. Um, one of the, in fact, the fastest known algorithm for video transcoding beating Google and all other kind of uh, um, uh, kind of in-practice mechanisms is based on Lambda. Uh, some great research out of uh, uh, UCSD and other places. And so this is a, a good example of getting it wrong, where we thought um, we thought it was going to do one thing. And in fact, developers showed us that it could be so much more and, and really just a much, much broader uh, set of use cases than we had ever imagined. Yeah. And I know you've been, you know, you've been away from AWS for a while now, but during those early years of Lambda, were there, I mean, obviously you're rolling this thing out. There are people adopting it. The, the adoption curve has been somewhat slow. I mean, I think it's it's sped up now, but like, were there missed opportunities early on? Like, are there things you could have done better you think that maybe would have sped up that adoption? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a it, it's it's a great question, um, and one of the hard things to balance. I mean, certainly I'm encountering this again at, at you know with uh, with Vendias. How do you blend the kind of the you know the top down and the bottom up, right? You know, your mm -hmm. fastest path to revenue is picking a few very large enterprises and trying to sell them something, and your best path over the long haul to a broad successful you know adoption in uh, in anything IT or developer related is to get millions and millions of developers to love and experience. Right. And so, of course, um, of course, the, the 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 best of all is when you can do both of these things. But that takes time. It takes time right. and energy. And, you know, I know one of the things we wrestled with in our first couple of years here was um, how do you balance those trade offs? You know, every minute you spend on evangelism and uh, and developer education and and docs and ease, ease of use features is a minute that you're not spending helping a John Deere or a Nike or a Nordstrom or somebody else become uh, incredibly successful at, at uh, making their business soar. And so, you know, that, that, that trade-off was tricky. And I think in our first couple of years, we, you know, we had some missteps there in terms of trying to figure out how to blend those, you know, those two kinds of activities. Uh, and it took a little while. I mean, the, the other, the other practical reality is that, uh, the more innovative something is, the more different it is. And the more different it is, you know, the harder it is to get people to understand it, adopt it, integrate it. And I think you're still seeing some of that. Um, you know, containers are a small step away from, you know, they're, they're baby servers, right? So they're, right. they're incremental and organic step away from what people were already doing. With serverless and more broadly with managed services, we were asking people to forget everything they've learned about the cloud and to some degree about uh, backend software development and start all over right. again. Uh, and you know, some of the things we, uh, you know, we screwed up, um, we were slow to even just adopt the word. And so we had a, what I now call the Voldemort problem. We had a thing <laughs> we couldn't name. <laughs> right. So people would say, you know, what do you use Lambda for? And, and now we would say to build, to build, you know, serverless applications, right? But at the time we were trying to say, well, to build applications that use events to do stuff, which is simple, but it's cool and, and you know, <laughs> 
Uh, right. and so the, hence the, the, the Voldemort problem. And uh, so once we allowed ourselves to start using the word, uh, and I'm not going to defend serverless as the best term, but at least it is a term. I'll tell you, right. one of the, the hardest things to do as a business owner is sell something that you're not allowed to actually name. So <laughs> learn my lesson <laughs> with that. Don't repeat that particular mistake in the future. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. So I guess maybe a, a question I have for you, too, and this is something now that you're away from AWS, maybe you can answer this. But I get what you said. You have to sort of focus on these enterprise customers, right? Like the enterprise customers are important. They're the ones who pay the bills. But that broader adoption, that that sort of groundswell, right, that, uh, you know, the developers figuring out a better way to do something. That's why all these frameworks, that's why all these, you know, JavaScript frameworks become so popular because it, you, you get all these developers using them. Yeah. I mean, is that something like with Lambda early on, um, you know, were you really pushing that towards just enterprise customers or was that something where you thought this could be like a ground up approach? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that we at AWS at the time really dragged our feet on and, um, you know, to, to ill effect was, was coming up with some of these, some of these frameworks, you know, we, mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and look great kudos to the serverless framework guys and, and Austin and others there for, you know, stepping in and doing that. Um, there, there are tools now, I mean, Stackery has done a great job of making serverless, I think consumable by the enterprise, right. uh, mm -hmm. something we, we kind of missed. Uh, look, you know, AWS is, is fantastic at focusing on things like, the availability, right? You know, the nines of the service, latency, jitter, right? These these key kind of golden, what what people would call the golden metrics, right? Of a of, mm -hmm. of a service, um, you know, it lives and breathes that. The uh, one of the most important things you do in the course of a week at AWS is you go to the ops meeting, uh, and the ops meeting is you know where you show your dirty laundry, you learn from your mistakes, you you know mm -hmm. you, you reveal your metrics to uh, <laughs> to you know to your <laughs> colleagues, right? You hold you hold yourself accountable, and these are the things that that you focus on. The, and all of that's amazing. What, but, but there's no equivalent of there's no ease of use meeting every week at AWS, right? And so the idea of helping developers be productive, of making things simple, of making them consumable, you know, when you started with things that were just infrastructure, that wasn't really necessary. Uh, but as AWS moved up the stack into these managed services, it's had to learn that that's actually a big piece of the equation, right? Something that Microsoft and you know has known for years, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and has, has done a great job in um, in actually helping developers not just know of something or keeping something up and running, but helping them actually figure out how to use it. And so, you know, that's a that's a, a, a systemic learning for you know for AWS as a whole. And I'll certainly say, like uh, you know, in terms of being vocally self critical, like I didn't get get that right either right. at first. And so we waited way too long to do things like SAM. Um, we didn't put enough uh, wood behind some of those arrows. And so I think we kind of left the community to sort it out. And you still see the the after effects of that. Right. I still talk I still talk to people who say uh, I don't know how to deploy it. It doesn't really fit into my CI CD pipeline. It's it seems simple to run, but it's not simple to kind of build and test and and, uh, and 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 operate in the same way that other things are. And so the fact that somebody could find Kubernetes easier to deploy than a Lambda is, <laughs> you know, it's I think it's unfortunate and a bit of an indictment that uh, that the right. tooling and the and especially some of the the kind of the broader enterprise usage patterns weren't first and foremost in our thinking when we brought this to market originally. Yeah, I totally agree. Because I mean, I think that's one of the things that has been the biggest complaint that I that I hear is just this lack of, um, I guess, coordination or organization where, um, you know, you can deploy it with the serverless framework, which is great. You can deploy with Stackery now. But back before, it was like cloud formation. It was using Terraform. I mean, even when serverless uh, framework came around, that made it a lot easier. 
but there are still people who write blog posts about how they write this custom deployment script, you know, that generates uh, cloud formation or something like that, or uploads them, you know, uploads them manually and triggers an API. I mean, and certainly those are all valid ways to do it. It just seems like there wasn't a way that was put into place early on that would have been really helped to uh, really helpful to build off of that, as opposed to, like you said, letting the community kind of figure it out on its own. Yeah, and you know, and some of this was um, some of this was a learning curve for us at AWS too, right? In in terms of understanding, because if, if you thought of a lambda as something that you hooked up to an S three bucket, then maybe it didn't need a whole kind of development paradigm or, right. or CI/CD right. pipeline mechanism or application construction framework around it, uh, and it quickly grew to be obviously so much more than that. And I think had we known how far and how fast that was going to go back in the day, we would have given more credence to the idea that we need our own. You know, we need a framework here. We need client side support for this. Um, we also had, you know, we had a little bit of that AWS itis. They're like, look, if the service is great, people will do whatever they need to do. Right. And uh, and we didn't realize, uh, you know, we didn't think hard enough about the fact that, hey, if it's <laughs> if that's hard, or even if there just isn't a simple way of doing it, it's, it's going to actually make the service difficult to consume because it's not just a it's, it's not a uh, least common denominator plug-in piece of infrastructure here, right? It's something that uh, that's, right. that is very very different in that regard. All right. Missed opportunities aside, the past is the past. <laughs> what we've what we've gotten to now is an absolutely amazing ecosystem that allows people to build applications without thinking too much about the infrastructure. You still got to think about it a little bit, but for the most part, all of these amazing tools. So where are we now? Like where? You said what? It was 2014 when it uh, was uh, in preview. Long. Went live in 2015, right? So it's been over five years. Where are we now with serverless? Yeah, I, I call it the. Um, you know, I, I always say like we're, we're in the terrible teens now. <laughs> we're um, we're you look. It's far enough along. It's no longer an infant. It's obviously become something that uh, you know that that millions of developers are using that. You know, the majority of the Fortune 500 have some kind of serverless, you know, uh, a technology or solution in place, uh, you know, from some cloud vendor or another. So, uh, you know, I would say in that sense, it's been a remarkably, a remarkably successful introduction of, a, you know, of a net new technology and and uh, and paradigm. Uh, on the flip side of that, you know, look, you can see the shape of the adult that it's going to become, but it's not adult in all in all ways yet. So, I'll take. Um, you know, take an example here, uh, uh, DTCC, fantastic example. So, you know, the U.S. financial system has a lot of safeguards in place. And one of them is that it has to be possible if something happens on the East Coast, if there's, you know, let's say a flood or something in, in, uh, in New York, that you can keep the stock exchange and other kinds of key financial uh, capabilities up and running. And so that means you have to have capacity that you know you can get to in another region. You know, this is the kind of thing that's really tricky to do in, uh, you know, the way this is would have been done kind of formally with servers is you just point to them. You're like, OK, look, you know, we got a thousand servers. They're sitting in U.S. West, too. You know, we're, we're good to go. Right. They're they're yeah. they're RIs or DIs or something on AWS or the equivalent on, on another cloud. Um, but we couldn't really do that with lambdas. Right. There was no way to say, well, these are your these are your lambdas. Right. Because because lambdas aren't capacity. And so uh, things like the provision capacity feature now, it's not just a response to developer needs, it's also the kind of thing that makes enterprises uh, able to deliver these regulatory compliant capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so it's a great example of, of what I call kind of serverless growing up, you know, all of a sudden, key economic and, and financial mechanisms that power not just the US, but the global economy can run on Lambda. And that's a that's a huge step forward. 
and, and very, very different from where we were back in 2014 when we, right. uh, you know, released this as a kind of simple scripting mechanism to, uh, you know, to, to, to uh, thumbnail images coming out of, uh, you know, coming into S3. Uh, so really, really, really real game changers there. Yeah. And I think that you're right about the enterprises showing up, right? Like finally you see more stories. I mean, it's like Liberty Mutual and Lego. And I mean, just so many of these stories now that, that are fascinating of them, like rapidly moving to only serverless um, or as much as, as much serverless as they possibly can. So the, the other thing though, I think that's interesting, and this is something that was sparked. It was sort of like a, almost like an arms race or a space race, right? Where it's like, who can develop serverless better or do more serverless things? And you got a lot of the big, you know, the big ones in there. So you got Microsoft obviously doing it and you've got, um, you know, IBM, you know, taking over Apache uh, OpenWhisk and you've got, um, you know, Google in there. But then you have all these other like, you know, uh, sort of fringe edge providers like the Cloudflares and the Fastly's. So this has created a whole new sort of ecosystem. So what are your thoughts on like how how is that driving um, maybe the complexity or maybe the uh, I guess the confusion or the adoption? Like I don't know what the right way to say that is, but it's it's like the wild west. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, or, or the terrible teens, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's true. Look, it, it's uh, I, I mean, I actually think a lot of those things are positive. I've you know, it's one of the things I've said before. I uh, Google, for example, is doing a really bang up job of uh, of thinking about the customer use cases and and mm -hmm. you know if you look at if you kind of position them uh you know they the different cloud providers have taken very different uh have taken very different tacks here you know aws uh you know we asked the question if we just let go of everything that we've ever done or ever known in the cloud and made something completely new how should it work what would it do how could it best serve developer needs right and that's an interesting question to go answer i think google has asked a very different question you know they've said what is the what is the kind of minimal risk, uh, maximal insurance solution we could give people that adds some value over where they are today? Mm -hmm. And you see things like Cloud Run, which is a relatively narrow uh, technology, but an insanely useful one, right? They've taken yes. this really important use case of building a, a stateless front end, and they've and they've gone out there and nailed it. And uh, you know, and in some ways, it's thematic with what they've done with uh, you know with their um, uh, with their app engine and with Anthos and others and Knative. Uh, they've said, how do you how do you get some additional value uh, in the world that you're already in today? And that world might be on-prem, for example, or it might right. be an existing monolithic application, uh, or it might be a container. Uh, and so they haven't stepped as, uh, they haven't gone nearly as far or stepped nearly as, as aggressively as AWS has, but arguably they're giving a lot of people a lot of value, even though it's perhaps not as far away from that. Uh, and then you get folks like Cloudflare, who I think are, um, obviously, they're building on what they do best here, but it is—it's amazing. You know, they've taken this challenge of of how do you do compute on the edge, even if it's a, a stripped down, modest kind of compute, right. but making it almost ubiquitous, so that you know, literally, kind of in line with every uh, you know, with every HTTP call. You know, what if it's like if, if every HTTP call in the world could be scripted? What would that look like? And Cloudflare is, you know, is doing a fantastic job of making that a reality. Uh, I'm, I'm envious, you know, we, we, we wanted to do that with, uh, with Lambda Edge. And I would say, yeah. you know, we never, we never quite got there with that, with that product for all that it does some, some super useful things, but it's not that kind of ubiquitous, uh, inline everywhere and every edge cell that, uh, that Cloudflare has created. And I, and I'm really, I'm really impressed by what those folks have done. In fact, you know, I, you know, AWS, if you're listening, you know, think about this for your edge <laughs> devices. <laughs> I don't want to run a thousand EC2s in every, you know, in every like, 
you know, every Verizon uh, pod sitting up on the street and uh, on the street corner. What I want is something that works like Cloudflare. So I think they're serving a useful role as challengers here. And, uh, you know, for customers who, who have that particular need, just like with uh, Google Cloud Run, I think it's, it's a really nice product. Yeah. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Dynabase. Most of you probably know how much I love Amazon DynamoDB, but modeling data is hard and working with the AWS console can be clunky. This is where Dynabase comes in. It is a professional GUI client for DynamoDB that accelerates your DynamoDB workflows. It's loaded with features like easy data exploration, code generation, bookmarks, tabs, history, import-export capabilities, and so much more. Accessing your DynamoDB tables with Dynabase is as easy as entering your AWS Access credentials or by connecting to an external provider like AWS Vault or AWS SSO. Dynabase is available for Mac, Windows, and Linux. So if you want to take full control of your DynamoDB projects, go to dynabase.dev, download it, and try it for free for seven days. That's DY. So another thing I, I think that where or where we're at a point with 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 Lambda and with serverless in general uh, is we've got all these frameworks. We've got a lot of tools now. AWS has built a whole bunch of tools in that help with deployment and things like that. But you're still either using APIs or in many cases configuration files, right? So that undifferentiated heavy lifting, a lot of that's gone. I don't have to write my own queue anymore. I don't have to you know, manage my own database, but I still got to connect those. And, and the only way to do that is with configuration and often YAML files, right? So what is, is that still a friction that you see you know, hindering or, or slowing down innovation? Or is it something that you think that, you know, that just needs to be abstracted away at some point? You know, it's it's some of this is definitely a consequence. Uh, you know, it's the uh, square peg in a round hole kind of challenge, right? The mm -hmm. the the irony, of course, is that serverless was supposed to make the, the cloud easier to use, but when you take a, an existing tool and you try to reapply that, sometimes it can actually make things harder. And right. you know, a lot of the CI/CD mechanisms out there, things like you know, CloudFormation was designed to take a bunch of servers, configure them in a particular way, right, and put them in an environment that was that would allow them to run and get something done. Uh, that's a very different problem from saying, I want to build a an application out of fully managed components, and I want to wire it up, ensure that it has least privilege, um, you know, make it really make it ephemeral, so I can stand it up and tear it down mm -hmm. again. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll just give a little anecdote, you know, in, in building. Uh, so so Vendia is not just serverless; it's in its in its kind of runtime. It's also serverless in its CI/CD deployment. So what I've done is I've taken the AWS CDK for those you know for those who haven't used that um, think CloudFormation, but like turn into Python or or uh, or, or JavaScript uh, a node form, uh, so you can programmatically construct things. And so I wrapped a, essentially wrapped a compiler around it. Which makes it really easy for me to stand up our, you know, our code base and create as many different test cases or or production deployments in parallel as I need. That's, you know, it's great, and that I was able to accomplish that. You know, like as, uh, you know, as, as one guy, I'm mean, here. You know, I could uh, I could do a prototype of of something that would normally have taken a team of ten people to do, thanks to tools like the CDK. The flip side of that, like 
I had to go build a compiler around the CDK to make this really right. easy to use. And, uh, uh, and, and even with all of that technology, like this took, this took a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of energy. So I think there are folks here, um, you know, I'll, I'll put a plug in for Stackery. I think they've, they've done a fantastic job of helping people find a very different and much easier way of constructing a serverless application than starting with CloudFormation, even if, you know, CloudFormation kind of sits in the background right. of that you know, just as it does for the CDK and others, um, but treats it more like the assembly language of the cloud. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think Reed Hastings said this best, you know, back in a, a, an AWS reInvent in like 2011 or 2012, where the, you know, we're at the assembly language level. I think like with with uh, with some of these tools, we've come up to maybe the C level. We're not quite up to, <laughs> you know, Python and high level right, language right. Here, here yet. You know, we're, we're, we're getting, we're getting there. <laughs> Well, you mentioned CI/CD, and it, it's funny because I have this running joke in my uh, in my newsletter that I write every week that it essentially always calls out like it's another week, another C, a custom CI/CD process for serverless because it seems like every every time I see a CI/CD process, it is written differently. And I know AWS is now put into place. Obviously, they have code build and code pipeline. They've added more features to that. You have the Amplify console, which will do CI/CD for you. Plus, they do like these bootstrap templates now with Lambda applications where you can set those up. Um, but that's that's the thing too. Like just getting through that process, implementing CI/CD in serverless is just—it's not easy. It's—it's it's not. And um, you know, look, I think we we kind of went from let a thousand flowers bloom to the problem of tyranny of choice here, right? Where mm -hmm. uh, just as you say, just keeping up with the set of uh, and the space of options can be problematic. Uh, and and I know uh, you know when I was at Coinbase, for example, we went back and forth on this. We ended up writing some of our own custom. Uh, stuff to make this work at, you know, at Vendia, I essentially, I've, having tried with some of my serverless networking pieces to use off the shelf stuff, I ended up doing my own custom CI CD. And, and I feel, I feel the pain. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's challenging. The flip side of this is if we get it right, it's also amazing. And, and this mm -hmm. is the piece that I also want people to like have, have this takeaway here, right? It's not just that whacking this into sort of old school tools is, is is difficult but part of the reason you see people experimenting is because of the incredible potential you know the ability to run a thousand different tests to literally stand up your production infrastructure not a stage not a stripped down developer workflow not something that runs in some kind of wacky emulation mode on my on my local machine but to literally mm -hmm. in real time run a thousand different tests in production in a real production environment in the cloud you know, at scale with all of the, you know, with all of the capabilities that they will actually have in production and then just as easily tear them all down five minutes later. Right. It's unbelievable, right? You never do that with servers. It's way too expensive. It's way too hard. You know, you, you have a team of, you know, 200 working on this for years, right? Like, right? like nobody does that. Uh, and that is the great opportunity of managed services. It's also the thing that is furthest away from what the existing tool sets are capable of giving us. Right. And I think it's one of the reasons you see people experimenting here. It's not just that they want CICD and deployment and testing to match the simplicity of the underlying services. It's also that the incredible opportunity here isn't fully exposed by a cloud formation or, you know, or some of the other tools that are out there. I'd say the CDK makes it possible. Um, you know, you can you can now do things like put a for loop around, uh, you know, around your deployments, which uh, which right. lets you do yeah. some of this incredible stuff, but only if you're willing to write the code for it. And so right. I think that's where we are with this, uh, the kind of that that golden future nirvana where all of this is not just possible, but easy. You know, we haven't quite gotten to that yet. 
Right. Yeah. And I love I love some of the next generation tools, too, that are like sort of working on this stuff. And um, and I mean, I, I'd like to say they're getting it right, but I still am not quite sure what right is yet either. That's the other <laughs> thing, um, which is part of the, uh, you know, which is part of the, uh, you know, the sort of the conversation. And, and actually speaking of that, I'd love to to move on to this this thing that I don't know if we've got it right or we've got it wrong. Um, but that's this <laughs> idea. That's this idea of state in Lambda functions or state and serverless, uh, you know, or, you know, I guess any type of fast, um, you know, so state versus stateless. Uh, I love stateless because I feel like it gives me a lot of control. It, I, I know exactly, it's like pure functions with a, a functional programming language where I just feel like, you know, you're not, you're, you're not bound by the state or you're, you're not, you know, uh, your applications don't get confused by that state. And so I really do like the stateless aspect of a Lambda function. On the other hand, Lots of applications need state. So where are we with this? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, you know, this is sort of the, uh, I, I call this the great philosophical debate of our time, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, and look, you know, we talked about the origin story. Like the original concept was, you know, motivated by 12-factor app design and so forth was, mm -hmm. uh, was separation of concerns. Let S3 be an amazing storage service. Let Lambda be an amazing compute service. Let, let Dynamo be an awesome NoSQL database. And then, you know, there's this cool thing called the internet and network cables, right? Like, you know, wire it all up and, and, put, and put it together and it'll be awesome. Uh, and I think in some cases that's, that is exactly how it plays out. I mean, if you've got a relatively simple use case where you're, you know, you want to store something in S3, trigger a Lambda function, operate on that thing, maybe put it back again, you know, rock on, few lines of code, hard, almost hard to imagine how you make that thing much simpler, right? right? I mean, I mean, CI/CD aside, as we've discussed, right? I, I think we've, I think we've squeezed course. out about as much of the cost, complexity, uh, and so forth of that, and we've transferred as much of the operational hassle back to AWS on that as is probably possible to do. So I think, I think that part's all great. Where this gets tricky, though, is you know, as you say, uh, lots of applications have state, and 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 even sometimes that's macro state, sometimes it's micro state. You know, uh, mm -hmm. the one of the big things that's tough about using Lambda with Kinesis uh, for all the hard work that has gone into making that integration soar, um, but it's still the case that there's no state there, which means there's no affinity, which means you can't do something simple like just add up the values on a particular right. um, on, on a particular um, uh, you know channel right within that within that broader data stream, because you never know which Lambda function is going to get it. <laughs> and, right, so, right. and so you end up doing things like, uh, you know, copying it into, into Dynamo and then back out again or something, which is, which is pretty strange. You're taking one persistence mechanism and then copying it to another persistence mechanism, rendering it to disk, you know, going back again, right? I mean, that's right. a, it's a huge waste of, of money, of time, of opportunity to do something that could obviously be done, done simpler. And there's a good place where state is meaningful, it matters, and we obviously haven't quite nailed uh, the way that that gets put together. Uh, I'll also say it's just confusing. The other thing about about state and serverless is, uh, you know, look, I actually uh, had I actually had this conversation with a developer, and, um, and and this guy came up to me and said he's like, I looked at Lambda. It looks simple. It looks really cool. But my code has variables, and I store stuff in those variables, so I don't think I can use it because they say it's stateless. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, look, you know, we can we 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 can chuckle at that a little bit, but it's a it's a it is a good example of folks who. Um, have a hard time understanding what does stateless mean here? Because it's obviously right. it's got memory, it's got disk, right? It's mm -hmm. it's uh, it can hook up to things like Dynamo, 
Making that easy and approachable is something that I don't think we got quite right. And Sam has tried to make that easier. And obviously, there's a lot of education out there on serverless design patterns. Um, but one of the things that is is really tricky is, um, you know, it's still not easy to hook up Redis to, uh, to, right. to, to Lambda. You know, the, the standard mechanism of storing uh, you know, of, of, durable, of durable, but not persistent state, right? I mean, the thing that everybody uses to build their, right. <laughs> exactly. every, like every BDC application out there, right? And it is it is one of the hardest things to do with with a Lambda. And so I think that's a good example. And and, and Lambda's not specific here, you know, Azure Functions, Google sure. uh, Functions, all the same. Uh, so here's a good example where, uh, you know, I, I think the challenge to the cloud, cloud service providers is make the practical kinds of state easy to do, whether that's, mm -hmm. you know, Redis integration, um, uh, conventional file system integration, like I love S3, but sometimes you really just want a Linux file system hooked right. up. And, you know, we still don't, e EFS at eight from AWS, for example, it's like uh, you have a, you have an infinite disk drive and then in Lambda you have an infinite computer, but then it's like there's a wall in between them. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the, right. the cable, the cable hasn't quite connected through the, uh, you know, on the, uh, on, on the floor there. So I think there's some of those pieces were we to kind of get them together would give developers just a, a phenomenally better, easier, more tractable way to handle some of the problems that they have of writing practical applications. And, you know, we can call that state. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think one of the things that I love about serverless and the fact that it has been stateless and you're right, stateless um, in this in this sort of context does not mean that there is no state at all. I mean, obviously you can use variables and all that stuff. Um, and it's very simple, like you said, call DynamoDB, rehydrate some object or whatever it is that you're working on. I mean, all of that is very possible in there. Um, and I like the fact that that kind of forces you to think a different way about how you build your applications, because it also helps when you start thinking about scale. Because I think a lot of people build stateful applications are not thinking about scale. Um, so. There are still going to be people that do that. And and as much as I would love to see us just change the mindset to say anything that you build in a stateful manner, you could probably build in a stateless manner. Um, there are still going to be people who are going to want to do that stateful stuff. So does, does serverless, if it doesn't get there, if it doesn't add that statefulness, um, is, is that going to hinder it from becoming sort of the default paradigm for building applications? You know, I've, I've used two... I have these two strong reactions to that statement, right? Like, like one of them is, I would say in some ways, the most successful thing Lambda has done is to challenge thinking, right? To get people yes. to say, do you really need a server stood up, turned on, taking 20 minutes to, to, to fire up with, you know, a bazillion libraries on it. Uh, and then you have to keep that thing alive and in perfect condition for its entire life cycle in order to get something done in terms of a practical, you know, enterprise application. And, right. and, Challenging that assumption is one of the most uh, one of the most exciting, important, and and successful things that I think Lambda and other serverless app, uh, serverless offerings have have accomplished in our industry. Uh, the flip side to this is, you know, to be useful, sometimes you have to be practical, and right. <laughs> you know, and and it's it's equally true that you can't walk up to an enterprise and say, all right. Um, Step one, let's 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 throw all your stuff away, and then step two, <laughs> right? Right. Because they're not going to get past step one. You know, uh, right. like there is a. It's funny we talk we talk about greenfields, brownfields. You know, the, the, there's it's all brown in the enterprise. There's there's right. even if you write a net new lambda function, it's running against existing existing storage, existing data, existing APIs, whatever that is. Right. Nothing is nothing is ever completely de novo, and so I think to be successful and be as adopted as possible in the long run, uh, 
serverless offerings are going to also have to be, they're going to have to be flexible. And I think you see this with things like provision capacity. I mean, we had, mm -hmm. when I was at Lambda still, we had long, painful debates about, is this the right thing to do? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and for understandable reasons, because it is less stateless. It took the, you know, it's, it's obviously optional. We don't force anyone to use it, but, um, but, you know, by doing it, it makes Lambda look more like a conventional, uh, well, server container, conventional application yeah. approach, because there is this piece that is a little bit stateful now. And I think the art here is for the serverless offerings to not lose their way, you know, to, to find this, this kind of middle ground that is useful enough to the enterprises that still challenges assumptions, that gets people to write stuff in a way that is better than what came before, uh, but doesn't, and doesn't pander completely to just make it feel like a server. Right. But um, but it's also practical and and helps enterprises get their job, you know, get their job done instead of just telling them, you know, because because just sermonizing to them is not is also not the right way to do it. Right. Yeah. And I also wonder, too, I mean, you mentioned Cloud Run earlier, which I think Cloud Run is a engineering marvel. I mean, it's probably not that complex, but it really is. I really like what they did there to make to basically take something that wasn't serverless, a container, and then give it those characteristics. And I feel yeah. like you have that bleeding back and forth between those. And obviously you can Fargate with, with AWS and they call it serverless containers. And that, I don't know how I feel about that, right? Because does it, <laughs> does it put you, you know, if we blur the lines too much, does that lose? I mean, do we redefine what serverless is? Does that even matter? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, you know, if, um... Uh, and 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 I say this with love because I want I want things like Lambda and and uh, and, and serverless uh, you know sort of fully serverless apps to be super successful. But if all that we accomplished was to help the cloud providers make things like containers have fewer infrastructure artifacts, fewer things to have to set up and configure, you know, less painful maintenance and deployment and security overhead. Uh, so people could get the jobs done faster. Like that would still that would still have been a success. And I think to the extent that we can also sort of challenge the uh, you know the dominant paradigm as it were, and get get developers to build applications that are you know easy, fast, and fun. You know all the all the better. So I, so I think it's all good. I think um, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's also the case that some of these are interim states and some of these are end states and. You know, one of the one of the ways I've talked to people about this, you know, in the past is um, when you write an application as, you know, as maybe maybe you write it on a server and you think you're like, OK, well, at some point I'm going to containerize that. And then you containerize it and at some point you think, you know, I should really be running this on whatever Google Cloud Run or perhaps yeah. Fargate, depending on my application and my cloud choice, um, because I'm, I'm doing too much low level, like I'm still responsible for keeping that, you know, that 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 underlying piece of infrastructure alive and running. And that's just kind of a waste of my right. time and energy. AWS or, or Google or Microsoft can do that better than I can. So there's this sense of progression. But once you've built something out of a set of managed services, you know, you're done, right? That's the sort of the end of that state machine, right? It's right, the right. it's kind of the, the final final. It's the it's the it's the end game. And this is something that I think is going to take us a while to get to, right? I mean, we will have as an industry, um, you always iterate organically. Um, you know, that's why, I mean, not everybody's even in the cloud yet today. Right. Uh, so, so you, you can see those trend lines and you can see where that's going. I think, and I think realistically as providers, um, the, the, the CSPs are going to have to do both, right? They're going to have to provide people the organic incremental steps that help them do something a little better than they did yesterday. And they have to work on this thing, which is what is the ultimate end game? If you could, 
you know, if you could get everything to be exactly the way that you want it. Right. Uh, and, and those two things are going to run in parallel, which is why I like it's, it's never an either or. It's not like one's going to win, one's going to lose yeah. in the same way that VMs are still around. Right. And, uh, and, and will be for our, for, certainly for, for our long lifetimes. time. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so you, you mentioned, you know, this terrible teens idea and obviously yeah. innovation in serverless is not done. There is a lot more. Um, that we can do. We have to figure out this blurred line. We have to, you know, uh, figure out maybe networking and some of these things. So you you have a blog post that you put together uh, a couple of weeks ago or so, um, which I thought was great. It was it was like a, a, two, that, a 2020 reinvent wish list for, for AWS Lambda or for serverless. Um, and we've talked about a couple of these things, but um, there's a whole bunch of them. And I'll put the link in the show notes because I, I encourage people to go and look at this if only to figure out what is missing, right? Because I think a lot of people don't even know what's missing until they read your post and they'll be like, wow, I didn't know you couldn't do that um, or that it wasn't part of it. Um, but I'd like to go through a couple of these because I think they, uh, maybe the more interesting ones, at least interesting to me, um, because I think that these, you know, sort of strike a chord, at least with me in terms of things that you know you need or we know we need in order for, like you said earlier, like this to become just the way we build applications. So um, the first one was this idea of doing one millisecond duration granularity. What's that about? Yeah. So so look, um, uh, to understand this, when you have to also remember the context. You know, when we when we were putting LAM together, so say 2012, 2013, uh, you you couldn't have an you couldn't have an EC2 instance on for less than an hour. Um, and most companies, most of the time, were still provisioning on-prem servers that they had to go buy and stand up. And it was usually a month lead time to get new hardware into those, you know, racked and stacked and stood up. And so the idea of 200, uh, 200 milliseconds, uh, you know, 100 milliseconds, I mean, that just that blew people's minds. It right. was, uh, right? it, was uh, it was just astonishing. Uh, you know, in a world where you can run an EC2 instance, you know, uh, or, or a Fargate instance or something else for as little as a minute of, uh, of duration, However, and where people are using languages like Go that might do something useful in um, in in just a handful of milli single digit milliseconds, and, and frankly, also as hardware continues, I mean, I, we you know the whole uh, uh, the whole sort of um, uh, efficiency curve there has slowed down a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But still, even from Lambda's incarnation to where it is today, the hardware has gotten much faster that it runs on. You know, networks have gotten faster, right. uh, and so the idea of of running maybe a, a, an application that takes two or three milliseconds per call and then spending 100 milliseconds starts to look like exactly the sort of waste that Lambda was designed to get rid of, right? And one of the, one of the most successful things about, about Lambda and serverless in general is that it, it collapses this cost structure. You know, uh, companies, uh, enterprises, you know, famously, you know, uh, analysts will tell you maybe 10% utilization, so, um, you know, they, they radically overspend on the amount of hardware that they that capacity that they need uh, and serverless helps them get rid of that. But there's still these other forms of, you know, of waste in the system. And 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 this is a good one, right, where where it just isn't possible for something that is very, very fast. And it opens up a new set of, you know, if you can do that, it also opens up a new set of applications, because if you have mm -hmm. something, especially that's on a front end that maybe takes two or three milliseconds to run. Right. You're probably not going to do that on a Lambda today. Uh, with the improvements that the Lambda team has made with the, um, you know, speeding up the uh, the, the latency, uh, running on the new Firecracker architecture, right. it, it is yes. also become possible now to write these very low latency uh, applications. And I think part and parcel of that is is being billed 
fairly for those low latency applications. Right. And I totally agree because when I, the last time I was in Seattle and I, I was talking to one of the Lambda PMs, like, what would you like to see? I said, uh, lower uh, units of billing for, <laughs> because 100 milliseconds <laughs> is just crazy now. When you think about it, it never used to be like you said, but now it just seems crazy. I mean, even, even if you did like, you know, it had to be at least 50 milliseconds, at least that, and then it was per second, uh, per millisecond after that, or something like that. I mean, even that would be um, would would be better than than what it currently is. I, again, 100 milliseconds is still not very much time, so it's still it's still pretty amazing. But uh, but I'm totally with you on that. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Datadog. If you've been running serverless applications, you know how difficult it is to track down and troubleshoot issues, especially when requests span multiple functions and manage services. And that's why you need Datadog, a modern full stack monitoring platform for your cloud infrastructure, applications, and log metrics all in one place. With Datadog, you can troubleshoot issues faster with end-to-end -end tracing, latency breakdowns, and flame graphs right down to the request level details. You get complete serverless function observability to identify bottlenecks, concurrency limits, cold starts, code level issues, and service dependencies. And you can even collect and track business metrics from serverless functions with no additional overhead. So if you want to gain full visibility into your serverless architecture and troubleshoot performance issues quickly, sign up for a free 14-day trial at datadog.com slash serverless chats. Um, the other one, this is funny because I know you have some history with this, um, is EFS integration with Lambda because Fargate has it now. Yeah, you know, look, um, uh, and I say it's like, a, like not part of the team anymore. I have no special insight into this. Uh, but I can I can certainly speak to the need for it. Uh, one of the things that's you know that's really challenging is uh, is especially in a world where people want to try to do things like ML training or or running kind of some of those you know those ML outcomes off larger data sets where they want to be yeah. able to start to use you know think of some of these these applications where you do want to do use lots of lambdas to process data in parallel so you might want to work on a large data set uh, as we start to expose lambda to data scientists and and there's a whole other conversation about how you do that. Uh, you know, Eric Jonas uh, has written this fantastic paper, this you know, computing for the 99%, all about how how that should be a that should be a, a focus and a priority. Um, as you start to move in that direction, though, you've got to make it really easy for the compute to line up with these large data sets. And one of the challenges with um, you know with the S3 model is that you've got to pull them all into memory on data and then kind of shove them all or into Lambda and then shove them all back out again. Uh, yeah. And so this is where I think if we can get, uh, you know, it's kind of the the ultimate compute meets the ultimate storage here, right? Like you put it together, right. you get, it is it is the mainframe of our day. And I don't mean that as a slur. I mean, that as the highest possible complement. It is the processing engine that emulates uh, what, what a supercomputer can do, uh, but only if you can plug these pieces together. So I, I'm really excited for this. I think it opens up a lot of of applications and frankly it makes some of the stuff that's just really hard to do today like managing that you know that small amount of slash temp space effectively right, right. Uh, you know, those problems if not go away at least they get a whole lot easier yes definitely um, yeah i think that the use cases with with that are it just opens up a whole new world of things that you can do because i know I've, I've worked with large files and with s3 you're always streaming data and then you can't like you said it's hard to you know just that little bit of state would be would be nice in, in those sort of computing <laughs> situations. Um, so another one, and this is funny because this is, again, personal to me. I give a lot of talks. 
Um, and oftentimes when I give talks, one of my new ones is uh, how to fail with serverless, which is you know all about the failure modes <laughs> in the cloud. Uh, and one of those things that I find that I end up introducing this term to people, and this is not a term, I think if you're a computer scientist or maybe you have more traditional background, you would know this term, but I think there's a lot of people, uh, especially front-end developers, people getting into serverless that aren't quite you know, as technical um, on, on that level and nothing against their level of technicality, but um, is this word idempotency. Like a lot of people, I don't think know what that means and also don't realize the impact of it when you are using events in serverless applications, because one of the things on your uh, on your list was this idea of item potency protection. So I'd love it if you could explain what your solution to that is. Yeah, this is a you know look if there is a if there is a uh, an unfortunate garden path in Lambda, this is this is probably it uh, because <laughs> it it gives you the. It gives you the illusion, and it is mostly true. And and the mostly, of course, is the is 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 the devastating part of this. It's mostly true that you, when you call a lambda, it runs exactly once. And so you know, take something simple like you're going to go off and uh, let's say using this lambda to implement a bank account, right? And so you're going to go off and you're going to you know compute and in, add interest to somebody's account, or you're going to go do a transfer with that mm -hmm. lambda function. So it, you know, the you call it once, it runs once, it does its thing once. Everything looks good. The problem is the actual semantics of Lambda are at least once, which means every once in a while, not all that often, but not zero times either, it'll run more than once. So maybe it'll run two times or even three, which means you'll end up adding more money to that bank account than, than, than you expected. And while not everybody is using Lambda to manage a bank account, it turns out that just lots of things in the enterprise are, are important to do exactly once, not Right. Maybe a couple of times, not occasionally <laughs> a couple of times, but exactly once. And and this is a good example where, you know, I would say by focusing a whole lot on the service metrics and dynamics, you know, it's it's possible to sort of lose sight of some of the things that developers really need. And this was sort of, you know, this was something I feel like I, you know, certainly I got wrong in not giving people a simple solution for this earlier on. Because as, a, as someone who has you know, run a team you know, at Coinbase trying to adopt serverless, someone who has like, been trying to build a business around it, you know, I can tell you that some of these things not being there are incredibly challenging for, for adoption purposes. And one of the most common of them is just you want your code to run once. It seems like a really simple ask. And it turns out that building that in practice is a bit of a mess. You've got to stand up in addition to your Lambda function, you need a... Uh, you need a full-powered step function with, uh, you know, with a couple of nodes in it that you can go and run a task, and then it'll give you the exactly ones. And it, it's not that it's impossible; it's that it's expensive, clunky, and time-consuming. And right. you require every one of the 10 million developers you want to go use this to go figure it out on their own. Uh, and that's and that's really painful, right? Something that should be as simple as like go and check a box here. So this is one of my big asks for you know for for AWS to, to think about is. Yes, it's possible to solve. Like, no, it's not easy. <laughs> you know, please, 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 please give us this just checkbox that says, you know, make it run the way I've kind of always wanted to run. And right. we all, you know, we've all heard about the cap theorem. We, we know that's not easy to do. Uh, it's OK if it costs a little more, but it's something that would really make Lambda just dramatically simpler to use for virtually all of us who try to get something done with it on a day to day basis. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of those things. There are some of those patterns where the developer is left to figure them out on their own, right? So you're oh. putting in you're putting in something to try to to battle <laughs> that item potent operation, and it's it's a it can be quite a headache. So we talked about uh, serverless Redis a bit, and I'm sure we could talk even more about that. Um, but the last thing that I wanted to talk about on your list was serverless networking, um, and so 
you've done a lot of work on this and 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 like a lot of work on this which is pretty cool <laughs> in terms of being able to have running lambda functions communicate with one another and this is something you know again we we can talk about this more but uh, the ability for those those running functions to communicate with one another that is what gets us to this idea of the lambda supercomputer right yeah this is so so, so a little bit of context on this you know if you some of the most exciting research uh, and, and innovation that's happening in this space right now is happening in academia. And you've seen these, uh, we, we touched on this earlier, but the video transcoding work that's, that's gone on on top of Lambda. Um, you know, there's some, there's some researchers here, uh, you know, Eric Jonas, uh, Sajad Fulati, um, <clears throat> Johan Schlier-Smith, uh, Vikram Surkanti, uh, who are doing just incredible, insightful work into building just you know, massively scaled systems uh, that are often combining the state and the compute together, and doing really and doing really interesting, massive data parallel applications on top of a serverless architecture. So that's that's the good news. The bad news, <laughs> it's a struggle. It's it's right. really hard. And and uh, and and if you ask yourself this question, like, could you go rebuild some of the big infrastructure solutions of today, like like MongoDB? Could you go recreate MongoDB or Aurora DB? On, on top of on top of lambda so the answer is probably not and so like like what is what is what is making this hard for researchers what makes this hard for somebody who might want to construct an infrastructure style service uh, on top of a serverless base and the answer is you know the answer is complicated as, as it always is uh, but it's some of these it's a few missing pieces right it's um it's the fact that you can't uh, you, you can't do cross calls with Lambda. So that's the serverless networking piece of this, right? If you uh, if I've got two Lambda mm -hmm. functions, I can use them to call out to other services, but services can't call into them. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the origin stories earlier. Uh, one of the reasons we did this in Lambda was to keep people from using it as a conventional web server, because, you know, that was the mm -hmm. that was a that was a failure pattern, right? We would trick them into thinking that that state was there right. when it wasn't. So we turned that off. Uh, but in turning it off, we made it impossible to build some of the some of the use some of the standard techniques that you use to build high speed, data dense, uh, you know, multi computer uh, parallel applications, right? Mm -hmm. And so all these things that data scientists want to come and do now get get way harder. So serverless networking was a was an attempt to solve some of that by doing NAT punching and some of these other techniques down at the low level, so that lambdas could actually communicate and take advantage of the high bandwidth network that sits sits between them. Uh, and that's just one of the several things that you need to do to really make this serverless supercomputer reality. You need not just a distributed networking solution, uh, you need low latency as in single, mil uh, single millisecond uh, style choreography. You need high speed key value mm -hmm. stores, like we talked about with the serverless Redis. Um, you need a yep. way to hook this up to uh, uh, to uh, immutable inputs and outputs. So there's a there's a whole set of things that you have to do there, so that you can ultimately build something like say uh, you know CRISPR or you know or MongoDB on top of this, with the kind of outcome that you could get if you were to grab a bunch of a bunch of servers. And uh, and doing this unlocks a whole new set of people and a whole new set of applications that can start running serverlessly. So. I, I remain incredibly excited about this. I think we've seen enough evidence in the research community to suggest it's all possible. I think we've mm -hmm. seen enough evidence and direction from the cloud providers to suggest it is all doable. <laughs> but there's still a but there is still a uh, there's still a long road ahead uh, to make all of that uh, make all of that possible. So you know I wanted to help out with that. Hence some of the uh, open source stuff that I've done with the serverless networking piece. 
Um, but really, that is just yeah. one of, of several of these foundational um, elements, and we really kind of need to get them all in place to make this happen. Right. So is that something you're going to keep working on, or is that is it something where you think, like, you've proven this is a valuable or viable thing, and now the cloud providers just need to go and run with it. You know, I mean, it's probably a yes and a yes, right? Like there's, um, you know, I continue having some great conversations with folks who are working on this in the research community, um, you know, continue sort of uh, working as, as, a, as kind of time and energy permits in some of the open source uh, parts there and look forward to some exciting collaborations uh, with, with others on thinking through some of these challenging problems like the choreography and the key value stores. So, you know, with Vendia, I've chosen to, to put my energy into a commercial enterprise that's, you know, helping to solve a slightly different set of problems. I mm -hmm. think this space is going to be one where, honestly, and my great hope here is that this is also part of where open source works for serverless. Mm -hmm. uh, we're obviously like open source is not going to mean that we pull Lambda out of AWS or we pull right. Azure, you know, functions out of, out of Azure. It's going to be that people can create these frameworks and these mechanisms that help them get incredible new things done in the cloud. Uh, and that's where I think you can see the university research uh, and, uh, and the research community coming together with the cloud providers, coming together with this growing ecosystem around serverless to produce something that is amazing. So I think that's probably the best role for me in that is not to, not to try to be the commercializer of those pieces, but to help right. be a, you know, a human choreographer of, of some of that work and energy. Yeah, and I mean, and speaking of open source too, I mean, think about Kubernetes, right? Kubernetes has taken the world by storm because obviously containers are the, uh, I guess the uh, the standard that most people are now considering to be cloud native, even though there's plenty of people doing stuff with serverless. Um, so is that something where you see, you know, something like Kubernetes? I mean, obviously it's gonna be around for a while because so many people have started to adopt it. Um, but is that something where you think that's going to that's going to continue to gain steam or are we going to see serverless um, and maybe, you know, some more open server, open source serverless options kind of take over for that? Yeah, you know, one of the this is one of the things that uh, that Kubernetes got right. And I would you know, I would say like like everything's a mix, right? Uh, uh, it's complicated in a lot of ways, but it's also uh, it's also open and portable. Which is which is a key requirement for a lot of enterprise use cases, and and I think that is the that is part of the direction that serverless needs to move in. Because one of the key buying objections, you know, when I you know anytime I would talk to a customer, they always be like, "Wow, this is this is just, I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I love all of this." On the other hand, I'm afraid I'm going to get uh, I'm afraid I'm going to get cavities in the form of right. vendor lock-in. So yeah. uh, what, how, help me out with that. What do I do about it? And and one of the things that has helped give Kubernetes momentum is the fact that that question has an obvious answer in a way that today, you know, uh, uh, a Google Cloud Run and and uh, uh, and a Lambda and an Azure function uh, don't have an equally simple answer. So, um, you know, stay tuned for more from Vendia, perhaps on some of those those topics. But uh, I also think this is a place where the open source community has to come together and think about what's the right way to make this this work. Right? It's not going to be trying to run. To, it's not going to be trying to emulate the services like Lambda on a bunch of individual machines, right? And, and you can see some of the challenges of doing it. Um, I, I can tell you, for example, having been at Coinbase and watched a distributed ledger, ledgers go, that one of the big difficulties for them is that everybody's running this stuff on kind of stock hardware. It doesn't use the best and brightest of the cloud, and it's the least common denominator. Like, right. you know, wonder why, Ethereum, wonder why Ethereum is slow? Like, well... 
us because you can run it on a laptop. <laughs> Imagine running Amazon S3, literally S3, like for everybody on your laptop, right? And that's kind of why Ethereum is 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 running at the pace it is. Um, so you know, so there's, there's a lot to do there. I think it's not going to look like um, open source solutions for serverless will not look like uh, the Kubernetes model, but it is still a missing piece. And I think if we could get there, we'd also pre create a collaboration forum that people could you know, lock, lock, lock and latch onto, right? In a way that is never going to be quite as well developed if it has to be a single cloud provider running the show. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right. So speaking of Vendia, uh, I know you can't tell us a ton because you're still in stealth mode, but um, <laughs> you, said you, <laughs> you, you built it all, uh, you built it all serverlessly. Um, and you mentioned a little bit about, you know, using the CDK and some of that stuff, but uh, any success stories of building it serverlessly? Well, you know, uh, uh, pr proudly serverless, you know, one of the nice things about that is you can do a lot incredibly quickly, right? And here's a, you know, here's, here, here's a good story of developer, uh, developer productivity and progress. Cause like you were looking at the, at the moment and we're hiring by the way, uh, but at the moment you were looking at the developer team for, for Vendia. So there isn't like a, there are like a dozen people behind me furiously typing away, right? It's uh, this is, this is, this is, this is me and me in my spare time on, on nights and weekends uh, primarily. Uh, but think about just, just pick one thing here, like, um, like regional build outs. So you scroll back to when I started at AWS 2012, building a new region for, let's say, a service like S3, six months on a good, uh, you know, if you're lucky, right? Because yeah. hundreds of people, everything from surveyors and electricians, you know, uh, hundreds of vendors, a supply chain in the thousands, you've got to go get, you've got to go get this thing stood up, filled with, filled with servers, filled with racks. Fast forward to Lambda, uh, you know, so now circa 2016, let's say. So build a new region in six weeks with a dozen engineers who are able to use things like EC2 and take advantage of, of the cloud. Fast forward to Vendia. I launched, I launched not just one region, but regions all over the world, a large subset of them, all the ones in which the services I needed were available in about six minutes, because all I had to do was list the names Type the right. names in into uh, the CDK and wrap a for loop around it, right? And I was done. So you go like one guy, six minutes, uh, launching launching a production service at scale worldwide with, uh, with with essentially three lines of code. Now that's an amazing amazing example of the kind of productivity success that uh, you can get out of serverless and a well matched set of tools like the like the AWS CDK. So, um, and I think that's kind of the story, you know. Here it's. Um, it's getting rid of undifferentiated heavy lifting, but it's also this idea of capital efficient value creation, which is, you know, right. really what we're all about. It's amazing. Well, listen, Tim, thank you so much for one, speaking to me and taking the time today, but also for serverless. I mean, this is my livelihood. This is the livelihood of a lot of people um, that I know. Um, what you and your team did at AWS in those early days was just absolutely incredible. And it's just sparked this thing that I think has completely changed the way people build applications. I know it, it's changed the way I do, and, and uh, I look forward to everything that happens after this, including all this new stuff you're coming out with, with Vendia and that sort of stuff. So again, thank you. Um, if people want to find out more about you, more about Vendia, all the stuff you're working on, how do they do that? Uh, so uh, uh, we've got uh, we've got a website stood up. It's a coming soon website at vendia.net. Um, tune in. Uh, we, we come out of stealth mode on June 26th. I'll be doing the keynote at the AWS Serverless Community Day for Australia, New Zealand uh, on, on, at that time. Uh, and that's also when we'll stand up more of our um, 
uh, kind of take the take the wrappers off, as it were, and kind of tell the world what we're all about here. So can't wait to, to tell that story and have a broader conversation about it. Awesome. And you are, of course, on Twitter, Tim Allen Wagner, uh, your blog on Medium at Tim A. Wagner, uh, and of course, LinkedIn and all that stuff. So we will put all that into the show notes. Thanks again, Tim. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Tim Wagner for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, Dynabase and Datadog. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 52. For more serverless chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.